Hi, welcome to the Aerospace Industries Association of Canada's podcast. It's hosted by me, Mike Mueller, Senior Vice President of AIAC. In each podcast, we'll be exploring topics of interest to our sector by interviewing leaders in both the Canadian and international aerospace industry and relevant thought leaders in order to provide timely perspective and context in the world of aerospace in Canada. AIC is committed to serving its members by being the bridge between industry and the government while bringing industry together, acting as its voice. Hope you enjoyed the pod. Thank you everyone for attending throughout COVID-19. AIC has been working to bring the members together through webinars, podcasts, newsletters, and member meetings. We've hosted Canadian ministers of industry, international trade, small business, transportation, and government procurement. Just last week, we had on Deputy Minister from Innovation Science and Economic Development, and we will continue to connect the industry and keep members informed. We have also been working internationally and have collaborated with both the Aerospace Industries Association out of the U.S. and the ADS group in the U.K. throughout COVID-19, which is why I'm especially pleased to have the heads of those associations, Eric Fanning and Paul Everett, as our guests today. We'll post this as a podcast for those who didn't have a chance to catch it. And we will also have time for questions afterwards. Please email myself at mmuller at aic.ca, or you can also post it in the chat and we'll get to it after. So I'd like to introduce Eric Fanning, who is the President and Chief Executive Officer of the Aerospace Industries Association, representing nearly 350 companies in its membership, ranging from multinational prime contractors to family-owned businesses. Eric joined AIA after serving in the 22nd Secretary of the Army, where he provided leadership and oversight of the U.S. largest military service. He previously served in senior-level roles at the Air Force and Navy, and I'm told he is the only person to have held senior appointments in all three military departments and the Office of the Secretary of Defense. So welcome, Eric. We value your time and leadership. Paul Everett is the Chief Executive Officer of the ADS Group, ADS is the UK Trades Association that represents over 1,100 UK businesses in aerospace, security, defence and space sectors. Paul was previously Chief Executive of the Society of Motor Manufacturers and Traders. I should also mention that he is the Chairman of the Farnborough International, and we especially thank him for being here today, as I know the virtual air show and trade show will be happening next week, so this is indeed a very busy time. So welcome, Paul, and thank you for your time and perspective. My name is Mike Mueller, Senior Vice President of the Aerospace Industries Association of Canada, and we are Canada's National Aerospace Association, representing 95% of Canada's aerospace companies. So maybe I'll just start this off by posing a question to both of you on what you're seeing. Here in Canada, we did a survey. We saw 40% declines in revenue, 93% of companies working at partial capacity are closed for a period of time, long lead times to recover, Uncertainty with respect to second waves. We have an open letter to government calling on them to support the industry through measures that will keep the industry alive and allow the industry to contribute to the economic growth that will be needed as 80% of our industry's output is export related. So maybe Eric, if you can just tell us about AIA, what are you generally seeing in the US in terms of the aerospace industry dealing with the effects of COVID-19 and what are you hearing from your members? Well, I think we're all hearing the same thing because this is obviously a global pandemic and and a global industry, global ecosystem. And we all know the numbers. It's going to take years, we think, for air travel to return to what it was. Just in the United States, 3,500 planes are parked. Retirements of planes up 130% over what was projected. 
And IATA tells us that it could be 2025 before air travel returns to what it was before the pandemic. We think domestically, we could see that happen a little bit faster. But clearly, it's the worst crisis our industry has ever seen. On the defense side, things are better. You know, the, the customer is still buying, but it's an overlapping and shared supply chain. And there is concern that the commercial side is getting hit so hard that it will impact. And we're already seeing evidence of that, the defense side. We're doing, AI is doing a study of our industrial base, our supply chain. The results aren't all in yet, but what we're seeing is exactly what we expected, that it's being hit hard, that there are delays in sourcing, delays in transportation. They have problems with people back to work, keeping people at work, even though we were declared essential. And all of that will probably be compounded this fall when we see what the schools do or don't do. So it's a particularly bad time for this industry and we expect it to last a lot longer than, than we had imagined. At the start of this, we were focused on liquidity. How can we keep cash flow going? Quickly after that, it was, all right, we're going to have to figure out how to take care of the workforce as we get through this. And while we're working on those two issues, which are still important, is when all of us were realizing this is going to be a lot longer than we had imagined. Yeah, Eric, one of the stats that we saw is for every month our industry is shut down, it takes about a year to get up and running again. And and you're right, it's it's the schools. It's so multifaceted that it's 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 sometimes hard to navigate, but it's been an interesting time. Absolutely. Paul, is that similar to the experience in the UK? How is industry coping? What have the main challenges been? And then what are you hearing from your membership there? So obviously, we're all kind of dealing a very similar set of circumstances. And I guess when things began, you know, it did feel as if we were all just making it up. But the sad reality, certainly here in the UK and across Europe, is you know aviation and aerospace has been hit, you know probably one of the hardest sectors by both the pandemic and the the kind of lockdown that has been the the immediate response to it by most governments. As a consequence, where we are now here in the UK and other parts of Europe, sadly, is we are companies issuing redundancy notices. So we are sadly seeing many of our colleagues either leaving or, or will shortly over the over the coming months be leaving their their jobs and their their businesses. I think that the challenge everyone faces is we know that there will be a recovery. We are fortunately in Europe at least back in the air, albeit the intra-European travel and it's at a low level, but it is starting to slowly pick up. I guess like like Eric, I think we're going to see that intra-European travel Kind of, it, we would hope, depending on what happens through the next couple of months and through the pick up through 2021, and then hopefully we don't start to see the like demand for aerospace products pick up on the back of hopefully a, a more successful period and a, a sort of strengthening of the financial position within the airlines. Like the US, the defense and space sides of our industries have kept working through this period. I think we've seen them kind of quite challenged by how you continue to produce whilst recognising what we term in the UK and Europe social distancing. So we have a in, in the UK up until recently a two metre rule. So again, for a lot of businesses as they were trying to restart their manufacturing operations, how you accommodate that social distancing and or provide employees with the confidence and in some cases the protective equipment to be able to, to maintain Normal working has been quite challenging. One thing I guess that we can certainly here feel proud of is the the role that our industries, both the aerospace and the defence sectors, have played in actually supporting the nation during this crisis. So here in the UK, we had what we termed a ventilator challenge. 
So for many of our hospitals, they didn't have some of the equipment that they needed in order to deal with patients that they were seeing. So we as an industry work with government actually to put in place the manufacturing capability to swiftly produce the kind of ventilator machines that they, they were needed, that they needed. And also at a, at a local level, many businesses sending their facilities over to, to producing protective equipment for our national health service and a variety of their colleagues elsewhere in industry. So in some respects, it's been a very painful period. But at the same time, I think there has been a very coming together of the industry, both at the, the senior levels within the prime contractors through the supply chain to work together to try and at least mitigate the worst impacts that we're seeing. I just want to pick up on the personal protective equipment, Paul, that you had mentioned. You know, that's a that's a challenge here. How do you maintain that social distancing? The challenge in Canada is a lot of the health guidelines are coming through from the provinces, so at the subnational level. So we've been working very closely with our provincial associations, trying to to manage that. And then also you'd mentioned the airlines, which is absolutely critical. That was one of our top asks. Also is have the government work with the airlines, get them up and running, because at the end of the day, especially on the civil side, that's the end-use customer for both the manufacturers and the MRO. Maybe just turning now to, in terms of government support and investments, we're seeing many countries committing funding, airlines in the U.S. benefiting from government investments, Hong Kong investing billions of dollars, government investments across Europe, including close to $10 billion in Germany, and then most recently, France announcing $17 billion to support its aviation industry. Eric, maybe if you can just flesh out the measures that you're seeing in the U.S. and are they having any impact? And then what else needs to be done from your perspective? Well, they, there were a number of things that took place. Congress and the administration and industry all working together moved a lot faster than we typically see in Washington these days. It was an impressive collaboration to make sure that industries, ours in particular, I think, had a variety of tools so that each company had the flexibility to design a strategy for its survival. As I said earlier, the first thing we focused on was liquidity. How do we keep cash flowing through the system at the start of this? It was how to take and make sure that we have the workforce there when things pick up again. Now that we know this is taking a little bit longer, we still need to focus on both of those things. There still needs to be an effort to make sure liquidity is available to the companies. And our Federal Reserve also did a number of things that opened up the private markets in a way that we didn't see right when the pandemic started. But now that we know this is going to take longer, we need new and different ways to protect that workforce. And we've been looking at a private-public partnership that would keep people off of unemployment, allow them to maintain their benefits, but during a period which they wouldn't necessarily be working because business has slowed down so much. So there is, as you said, a real focus now on the end user, perhaps the end user of the end user, which is the flying public. So we're collaborating very closely with the airports and the airlines here in the United States based on work that we all did internationally up at ICAO. AIA currently chairs national consortium of aerospace industry associations and IATA and CANSO and ICCAIA work together very quickly to help ICAO and all the other stakeholders come up with a series of recommendations that each country, of course, is pouring over right now. The FAA has issued some guidance based on those recommendations. And then we're doing that same ecosystem work here in the United States to make sure that flying is safe and then to communicate that to the flying public to help perhaps accelerate people's return to flight. Eric, one of the things we keep pushing to the, our domestic government is the fact that our industry is absolutely so global. We need that cooperation. So 
We just want to thank you for your leadership at ICC AIA, of which AIC is also the permanent vice chair. It's been great to work with you on that. We also saw some challenges at the beginning of COVID-19, the essential service designation, both domestically and then working with yourself and FEMA, tackling some of the North American challenges there. And then also those government supports right off the bat. Actually, we got, we've been lobbying the government to take into account the longer lead times that we see within the aerospace industry. And we were pleased to see an announcement from our prime minister yesterday announcing the extension of some of the wage subsidy programs that are underway, which will be a big help to a lot of our medium, smaller sized businesses. To your point, Paul, trying to minimize some of those layoffs wherever we can. Maybe just to you, Paul, you recently wrote a pretty thoughtful op-ed about the need for the UK to match international commitments to aerospace. And a lot of what you touched upon mirrors what we're seeing here in Canada. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? And then specifically, if you can take a look at, or if you can explain to us the strategic plan that the UK has and how critical that is. Sure, Mike. I mean, so first and foremost, I mean, like elsewhere, I mean, the UK government has stepped in in a very significant way to try and protect our economy during the pandemic. But the measures that it's taken are generic, so they're economy-wide. So we have had what we have termed a furlough scheme, which is supporting companies so that so that they don't have to make people redundant. So the initial scheme was paying 80% of employee salaries through, through three or four months. That scheme will be extended out until October. There are also been a variety of uh, loan schemes for companies, as Eric kind of highlighted. You know, liquidity in those early days was very, very critical and on top of most people's minds. So the government stepped in. However, what we, I guess the reason I write op-eds is when things are going entirely your own way. So, you know, it's very clear, as we've all discussed, that for aerospace and aviation, this is going to be a longer-term problem for us to deal with. And, you know, inevitably, there is a competition for the resources and the investment for the future. And it's very clear from certainly what we're seeing here in, in Europe, that in France and in Germany, they have identified very clearly that aerospace is a strategic industry for them and they are putting investment in. They're all in exactly the same kind of methods, but, but broadly speaking, they are supporting their domestic carriers in order to create the demand. They are investing in additional resources for research and development, and they are all seeking to provide some form of wage subsidy to ensure that you know that, that the key skills are kept within businesses, even though there isn't the maximum work for them to do. Now, here in the UK, we ask, you know, the government is clear that aerospace defences are strategic industries, but at the moment they haven't been persuaded to provide an additional, what we would term sector-specific set of support mechanisms. We are definitely... I think the way it's described is in conversation or in discussion with government on, on what some of those are, and they follow a similar pattern. We, we clearly need to look at our, our UK-based supply chain and find a way to recapitalise it. Again, many of the businesses will be seeing a combination of you know, significant reduction in demand. Six months ago, those same companies were being pushed quite hard to increase investment to accommodate you know, increases in, in likely levels of demand. So, there's a big shortfall in those businesses, which you know many have obviously tapped into the loan schemes that the UK government has provided, but ultimately they will be hindered in their ability to invest in the future if we can't find a way of helping them to move from repaying debt 
to, to having sort of equity or capital in their business to invest in the future. So that's going to be a big theme. We are all, I'm sure, despite the pandemic, from a civil aerospace perspective, absolutely focused on the decarbonisation agenda. And in order to deliver aircraft that meet the kind of global demand for net zero by 2050, we are all going to spend and invest heavily. And inevitably, that, that requires some government help and support in doing that. And then finally, I guess, from a UK perspective, we are looking to see how public procurement, particularly of defence and space programmes, can be used to help provide some, obviously, as a, a bridge between the levels of demand that we're currently seeing in civil aerospace to, to, you know, three to five years when we see those being a bit stronger. And clearly, you know, if, if we've got to spend public money on supporting our industry, you know, buying capability that we, we need for national security reasons feels like the right way of doing it. I don't know if that helped kind of set out where we are here in the UK, Mike. No, it, it was interesting, Paul, and it seems as though we have a lot of the same challenges here in Canada. And unfortunately, governments that are taking maybe a little bit of the same approach, having those generalized programs in place, as opposed to specific programs in place for aerospace, taking into account the unique nature and the strategic nature, quite frankly, of our industry. And it's been pretty frustrating, Paul, as I, as I sense it also is for you. Maybe just moving on a little bit here, thinking specifically of opportunities for governments and industries to work together. You know, here in Canada, we've really been calling for a sector strategy because we feel that that underpins everything across the board. We embarked on what we call the Vision 2025 exercise about a year and a half ago, talking to the industry, getting their thoughts, and we came forward with six different priorities, which will be a no surprise. But the overarching theme and need was the need for this sector-specific strategy. So when you compound that with COVID, you know, the priorities of get the airlines back up and running, invest in innovation, how do you help position the supply chain for success after COVID? and then expedite government procurement, particularly, as you had mentioned, Paul, in, in space and defense, which is pretty critical. These are things that we keep working on. But just from your guys' perspective, what are the priorities of the Aerospace Association in the, in the U.S., Eric? And, and maybe also, what's the need for a strong association at, at a time like this? Let me take that question first. I think the value proposition of the association is as strong as it might ever be. You know, we're continuing to do the work we were doing pre-pandemic that we do year after year after year, but then responding on behalf of the industry and working with government to figure out what those tools should be. And in the U.S., there were broad tools available to everyone, but sector-specific work as well. And that was both on the civil and on the defense side because each side needed different tools. I think going forward, because we've been working very well with with Congress, with the administration in a bipartisan way, recognizing how important this industry is for the country's competitive edge and how good and important these jobs are for our economy and for the people who have the jobs and for their families. So that work is going well, but but what we need now going forward, sort of two things, one for each side. On the defense side is, is to make sure that there aren't large cuts to the defense budget to pay for other things because the threats around the world haven't changed. And on the civil side, of course, that government industry collaboration is going well. We need to get the, the ultimate end customer comfortable with flying. That's our biggest priority right now is working with government 
the airlines, the airports, and it will extend beyond that. You know, how you get to the airport, how you get back from the airport, the hotels, if you're traveling, the entire ecosystem to make sure that we understand the best processes and mitigating effects that we can that we can apply to bring down the risk to a manageable level until there's a vaccine and then communicate that. Part of that is being consistent and clear with what those processes are. And as I said earlier, we have really good guidance globally from ICAO and are just trying to figure out how to now apply that and let the flying public see that to get them flying again. Because like I said, industry and government worked well to think about how to bridge this crisis how to shorten that bridge by inducing a faster recovery, I think that's that should be our priority and is our priority right now. No, it's fascinating to see the common themes everywhere. And I know we're in a globally competitive marketplace, but it's great to have you both on. You know, we're the strongest friends within that global competitive marketplace. Just a reminder to folks, if they would like to ask a question, please email myself or put it into the chat function. We're going to go to that here shortly. But maybe, Paul, just over to you. Same questions. You know, the priorities, there seems to be a lot of common themes. It just shows how interconnected our industries absolutely are. And maybe just from your perspective, too, how important is that strong national association as you're going and advocating for the industry to government? Yes, it's always, you know, I guess we always say to people, you know, in some respects, we're an insurance policy, you know, if things are going well, then it's, it's it, you know, maybe, maybe people don't necessarily fully appreciate what we do. When things are not going so well, then you're hoping that that, that we are able to actually make a difference. And certainly we, we are, you know, our membership, despite the difficult circumstances, is actually holding out extremely well. You know, we are still attracting new members in and they're, I guess for lots of people and particularly lots of smaller businesses, you know, they are trying to understand what the landscape looks like and what the future plan against such a, a shifting and uncertain future. And we, I'm sure like you, Mike and Eric, are, are able to provide some access to some insight into, you know, what, what, what that looks and feels like. As we move forward I'm with Eric, you know, we, we need our end customer to be flying and to for the public to feel confident. And I'm sure if there are things that we can do together, because again, I'm sure we're working pretty much off the same AO kind of hymn sheet in terms of what the right measures are and how the, how to work that. But uh, again, I'll be very happy to share and exchange some of the information that we're working here in the UK and some of the work we're doing with government around that. I think that there there are some opportunities, maybe in the short term, probably more around the defence agenda and space agenda. Again, I think we're, we are all seeing, you know, some wariness around our, our sort of individual supply chain resilience and certainly a desire to shift away from some areas of the, of the global internet interconnected supply chain. And through that, there may be some domestic opportunities for companies in all our respective memberships as they look for alternatives to some of those faraway suppliers uh, and clearly as a, as a community that is at least three of the five eyes kind of see there, there there should be opportunities for us to be working more closely in support of some of the joint programs that our respective governments are engaged and involved in from a, just to make my life slightly more complex we are also working through the uk's future relationship with the european union and also engaged on a set of international free trade agreements with the, the US, Canada, Australia, Japan, and a few others. So the UK is having an, an interesting time. I fear it will continue to be interesting for, for some months and years ahead. Excellent. Well, thanks for that insight, both Paul and Eric. It's been fascinating. And 
I really want to thank you both for your time. We do have some questions here just coming in. So maybe Paul, starting with you, just because it plays upon the international trade angle here. And so I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but we've been pushing back against uh, protectionism. So how will outsourcing be affected as a result of the COVID-19 and the interest in keeping work local as opposed to outsourcing? Here in Canada, we've really been pushing back on on that notion of protectionism with 80% of our industrial output going internationally having open and free trade is quite important to us. But I'd be interested to hear your perspective, maybe Paul and then Eric. So I think we would take a similar line. Again, I, th- I think we are, from, a, from an aerospace perspective, certainly a civil aerospace perspective, you know, actually, you know, a, a, an international supply chain is a good thing. And it's certainly the part and parcel of the way our industry has developed over a long period of time. I mean, at the margins, certainly when we start to look at some of the dis- defence procurement activity. We're hoping to see in the UK a defence and security industrial strategy, which will be a little bit more strategic in determining what are the onshore capabilities that we as a a UK want to ensure that we have control over. But within that, like I think there's a recognition that we too are, are key exporters and if you want to succeed in export markets, then you have to be prepared to accept that there is a trade here. So, you know, high, high value goods are the ones that we export. Uh, and, you know, with co- countries around the world, we need to be able to come to an agreement as to, you know, w- what kind of exchanges we have. So I would share your view, Mike, that, that we are definitely promoting an open UK and an open market and would want to see that reciprocated around the world. Excellent. Thanks, Paul. Eric, any thoughts from you? I know, at least in British Columbia, we have, and across the country, we have packages going back and forth across the border multiple times a day. Any perspective on your end? Yeah, I I mean, one of the strengths of our industry to our country is that we're a leading exporter. And being an exporter means, you know, you have a global supply chain. That's like that. It, it's it's easier to sell products, not just because they're high quality, but the country buying them has some stake then in the supply chain. So I think we absolutely will continue to advocate for the the importance of keeping it global. That said, you know we we did see some perturbations in the global supply chain that that you might be able to target a little bit in some places where we had more trouble than in other places. And I think some of our members are looking at where they might make some adjustments still with a global framework in mind, but thinking, all right, I, I want to make some changes now to mitigate problems if this were to happen again. Oh, good, good perspective. Thank you. Another question here, maybe directed at, at you, Eric. So a question on how COVID will impact NASA's plans to get to the moon by 2024. And you'll also know that Canada joined that mission through an investment in the Lunar Gateway Project, but any any perspective on that would be helpful. Well, it, you know, certainly COVID's having an impact on cost and schedule for a number of things. We're reviewing that on the defense side right now, and it's a, it's actually a pretty, pretty hefty, pretty big impact. But at the same time, this month, the end of this month, we're scheduled to launch the Mars mission. And NASA's pulling that off in this incredibly difficult environment because they have to. This is the window. The window for Mars is every two years. But that gives me hope and shows evidence that they have figured out ways to mitigate some of the problems they're seeing through COVID. I think a bigger threat to getting back to the moon in 2024, which is a very ambitious schedule, is just making sure we maintain the bipartisan support and the federal government's program. That's the state's biggest problem the last 
20 years or so is maintaining agreement on what the strategy is and keeping the investment over time into that strategy. So that's what we're watching most closely. Interesting perspective. Thank you for shedding a little bit of light on that. And that actually just plays into the the next question I have too, which is something that we're watching very closely in Canada is that defense procurement, space procurement spend over the long haul in Canada, there's been sort of a willingness to encroach upon that when things get a little bit tough. So maybe, Eric, maybe first you and then Paul, you know, can you talk a little bit about the procurement process? I know in the States, there was a big push to put money, inject money into the system through those mechanisms. And maybe if you can, you know, has Canada, has the U.S. done a good job at that? And then what has been your experience? How has that contributed, sorry, to the overall health of the industry by doing that? And then maybe, Paul, after, if you could answer. Oh, the Pentagon has been has been great. Leaned in on this very early, very quickly, helping us with the designation of essentiality and then looking for ways to accelerate um, payments, increasing the percentage on progress in payments, cutting the turnaround time for invoices. And then we were able to track that from the primes down through the supply chain. Everybody was leaning forward to make sure that cash flow was not just maintained, but accelerated. Because again, the supply chain, it's not completely shared, but there's a lot of overlap to it. You know, it's a it's a risk mitigation strategy to have some defense business and some commercial business. And so that helps the commercial side, having having the defense side stay strong. But over time, we're seeing places where problems are setting in that are starting to impact the defense side. But certainly, that was one of the early successes, I think, in the response, the economic response. And we were benefiting here, being in the second year of a two-year budget deal that provided pretty healthy budgets for the Department of Defense. So, So the Department of Defense had that capital to work with in order to help shore up the defense side. Thanks, Paul. Do you have any comment from the UK perspective on that? It was a very similar experience, to be honest. Our Ministry of Defence did exactly as, as Eric has outlined, which is they too maintained their payments. They were willing to kind of take a slightly more relaxed attitude on, you know, partial missed delivery if it was impacted by COVID. Their pipeline of work kept flowing and has kept flowing through through this period. And, and it's been vitally important in, in, in ensuring that, you know, we, we've met many parts of the supply chain have been able to at least have some work to do with been helpful. I think yes, looking forward, there's a, there's a degree of anxiety here in the UK because we are, we are, I guess, because we had a new government at the end of 2019. They are just about to undertake a fairly significant, what, what they term integrated review, but it's looking at the UK's role in the world and the sort of defence and security expenditure and programmes that they need in, in order to deliver that. So there are, there are some concerns that the of COVID both on our national budget and on the specific defence budget might get squeezed over the course of the next 18 months to two years, which clearly would, would be challenging given the circumstances we're in. So obviously one of the campaigns that we are actively running at the moment is to ensure that our kind of national security agenda is appropriately supported through public expenditure and the Ministry of Defence has the resources it needs to, you know, to have the equipment and support requirements from industry that it that are necessary so you know that that's going to be a, a big issue we are the government uh, alongside their integrated review are also developing what they term a, a defense and industrial strategy which i think will be important for the uk but also the uk as a potential investment opportunity for companies because i think the uk will be making clear as i said earlier or clearer on those kind of 
sovereign capabilities that it wishes to keep on shore and the programs that it's going to utilize in order to create the right kind of environment here in the UK. I think there's a big focus on the need to be more agile and the need to respond more quickly to what are what is a complex threat environment. So we would expect to see higher levels of public investment into research and technology and innovation, which hopefully will help UK aerospace and defence industry, I guess, return to the areas where it used to be, which is as the generator of new ideas. I think we've been through a period where commercial sector more broadly is being seen to be more nimble than the aerospace and defence area. But actually, I, I, I would hope that we can begin to lead the world again as we begin to invest in some of the big challenges that we face, both the environmental ones, but also the national security ones. I couldn't agree more on the long-term aspect of this, and that's something that we've obviously been pushing for quite a bit. We've actually seen a little bit of a delay on some of the defense procurement side through COVID-19, and something we keep pushing the government for, because as we've heard some from some of our industry, if they have a strong defense side of things, they can actually shift some of the workers over from the civil side to keep going and we view it as pretty critical. Uh, so I, I know I promised you guys we'd keep on schedule here, but I have one more question, and then maybe we'll just wrap up. And then maybe, Paul, I'll put this to you first. So the question is, will we see greater competitive threats from non-Western aerospace and aviation countries that would threaten our dominance? And what effect would this have on our supply base? I think they're referring to maybe China and Russia there. Well, so I, I think it sits in our own hands to a degree. I mean, there's no doubt that if you if you look at China and you look at Russia, I mean, that they, they want to domestic aerospace industry and they are prepared to invest heavily in it. You know, we still collectively have a market lead here. We have products that most people are you know comfortable with and are are you know would prefer to be using. So it, it's ours to lose in this this respect. But to, in order to keep ahead, we have to keep investing. And that's a tough challenge. We know there are trade tensions both between Europe and the US, as well as the US and Europe and China. But I think collectively, we need to persuade our governments that you know, the, the threats come from a number of different places and that our best kind of future lies in working together to ensure that the advantages that we already have, we can continue to sustain. Because if we don't do that, then you know the value that we provide economically and from a national security perspective will begin to be eroded, and you know, you know we we can't afford to let that happen. Excellent, thanks, Paul. Eric, any any thoughts on that? I would just add one thing. Certainly, other countries, Russia and China, would love to have uh, what we have. It's not going to be easy for them, and it is our. It is as Paul said, it's it's ours to lose. But we we also have something else collectively. Our the members of our associations that that they don't have, and that is we bring a strong partnership to any sales that take place. We can be trusted in the long run to help maintain the equipment, make sure that it's functioning, and you don't necessarily get that level of partnership of other countries from Russia, China, in particular. So I think we we just had a good webinar with AIA and FEMA talking about the new NAFTA. And there's a lot of advantages. And like I said before, we're in a very globally competitive base, but it was great to have two great friends of Canada on, Eric and Paul. And I just wanted to thank you again for your time, lending us your time and your expertise and your perspective from both the UK and the US. So we just want to thank you on behalf of the membership of AIAC. 
And I promised we'd stay on time. I know everyone's busy. So again, thank you very much. And just for AIC members and also respective members of AIA and ADS, we'll make sure that we have this podcast available for folks to listen to at a later time. Please check out our website. Please sign up to our newsletter blasts that go out quite regularly. We want to keep connected. So thank you, everyone, and have a good rest of the day. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Have a good evening. That's a wrap for this episode, and thanks for listening. Please check out AIC.ca for more information, or if you would like to join AIC to be part of the conversation.